Did you bring your brain to the podcast with you today? I hope so. Stick around and you'll find out in a minute why that's important for today's episode of Datages. Friends and family, welcome back to Datages. Today we continue our discussion of the Datage. The greatest investment you can make in yourself is investing in the lives of others. And while our past coverage of this Datage has related to philanthropy and the notion of selfish selflessness, today we're going to focus more on the professional environment. I'm joined today by a very special guest, Dr. Art Markman, who is a professor of psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of several books, including Smart Thinking, Smart Change, Brain Briefs, and Bring Your Brain to Work, his latest book. Dr. Markman, welcome to Datages. Chad, it is a pleasure to be here, and please call me Art. Sure, Art. Well, thank you very much for, for being here again. And you're not only a professor at UT, but you're also vice provost for academic affairs. You've written over 150 papers on topics such as reasoning, decision-making, and motivation. And you're a prolific writer for publications such as Psychology Today, Fast Company. And you're a fellow podcaster hosting a podcast and a radio show entitled Two Guys on Your Head. You obviously keep yourself very busy. I'd like to understand how all these pieces of your life fit together. And I get the sense that there's a common element that runs through all of these pursuits, which is the application of the study of psychology to practical aspects of life and work and, and a commitment to sharing that valuable knowledge with others through a variety of platforms, obviously. Am I right about that? That's absolutely right, Chad. For me, what's interesting is I college undergraduate, I, I fell in love with understanding the human mind, decided to go to graduate school in psychology, studied thinking and reasoning and for a long time read you know wrote a lot of papers that get read by 30 of my closest colleagues and at some point began to realize that as someone who had spent a lot of time studying people i also understood a lot about people and it occurred to me that it's unfortunate that so few of us really get to study much psychology the the modern science curriculum which got laid down in the early 20th century didn't include psychology it was basically biology chemistry and physics as the sciences and psychology didn't have a lot to teach in the early 1900s and so it wasn't included now we actually know quite a bit about the way people and minds work, and yet we still don't teach people much about it. And that's unfortunate because I think we would all live our lives slightly differently if we knew a little bit more psychology. And so around the middle of my career, I decided that it was actually up to me to try to begin to figure out how to transmit more of this information, which led initially to some things like blogging for Psychology Today and actually ended up on the scientific advisory board of the Dr. Phil show for a while. And, and then that led to other things, consulting for companies and continuing to write, which added, I added Fast Company and, and started, uh, got invited to, to work on this podcast and radio show, Two Guys on Your Head. And all of them really are fundamentally about how can we help more people to understand that human condition in ways that might change the way they live their lives. That's a really great story. And I think the most surprising part of the story to me is that Dr. Phil has an advisory board. I don't think that guy listens to anybody. <laughs> 
Well, you know, the, the most tangible outcome of being on the advisory board was that for many of the books I wrote, he was willing to have me on the show. And so I actually did go out to L.A. and launch four of my books on the Dr. Phil show, which, which was an absolute adventure. He was uh, incredibly generous in that way. And, and people have talked about the Oprah bump. I don't know much about that, but I can tell you there is a Dr. Phil bump. I'm learning as I go in this new world of communications and publishing that means a lot because publishing these days is not about how strong is your message? What is the value you have to share? It's how are you going to sell us books? You, if you have a platform like that, it's great to be able to get your message out. And I commend you for you know having the wisdom to recognize that even though you were involved previously in very high level, important academic study, the audience you were reaching, you probably weren't impacting as many lives as you could and probably weren't making the level of difference that you could in the world. I'm really glad that we've found you and I'm glad that you've found a platform to be able to reach out more broadly to, to people around you. I think that really means a lot. I think it's incredibly important. I always encourage my fellow scientists to do the same thing in their fields. And you know, a lot of us, I mean, who, who teach in university environments, we, we get to influence our students but even if you teach a bunch of large classes, you influence you know, students in the hundreds. And by by being able to write for various platforms and have the radio show, I mean the the audience just gets bigger. And and I think if there's I think there's a lot of important content out there that you know from the sciences that people need to know, and that provides an antidote to other information that gets out into the public sphere that doesn't really have any evidence base behind it. Well, and I think you made a really good point earlier. And again, I'm really glad that your knowledge is finding a general audience because as you said, psychology has really gotten pushed aside and not made a fundamental part of education. I was pre-med at Stanford. I've had a lot of natural sciences, chemistry, physics, biology, and I can tell you I've used that much of it in the rest of my life. I took one psychology class and I know I've used what I learned in that one class more than any of my other science classes combined. Well, you know, it's it's so funny. I, I was also lucky here at, at UT to, to to help create a program called the Human Dimensions of Organizations, where um, we actually use the liberal arts broadly, so including the humanities and, and other social sciences, as well as psychology, to try to teach people in every organization about people. The funny thing is, if you're in business school, they often call the all these things the soft sciences, right? And the soft skills. And oddly enough, they're the hard skills. I mean, the, the thing that separates the, the successful people from the unsuccessful in almost every walk of life is the ability to deal with people effectively and to resolve conflicts and to recover from mistakes. And yet we don't take advantage of the wealth of knowledge that there is about people, particularly in fields like psychology, that would really give people more insight both into themselves and into everybody else. Well, I can tell you're preaching to the choir over here because as a member of the Humanities and Sciences Council at Stanford, this is what we spend our whole time focused on. And we had a Datages series that was focused on the most important thing to learn is learning itself that was totally dedicated to understanding the value of liberal arts education. So again, I commend you for the work that you're doing. And I agree 100% with your perspective on the importance of that type of learning. And with that background context, let's go ahead and dive into your latest book. 
Bringing Your Brain to Work. Uh, this book is, is really a handbook of sorts for navigating a successful career, getting a job, excelling at work, and then ultimately finding your next position whenever that time may come. And it comes more and more often, obviously, these days as career paths change. And you employ the tools of cognitive science to provide this guidance. Can, can you walk the datages, friends and family through an overview of the book, perhaps, and the approach you took in providing this sound career advice to your readers? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that as you point out, you know, we have this loop in our careers in which we, we get a job. Sometimes it's that first job out of college, but sometimes it's just the next job. And there's a certain amount of work we need to do to impress other people, to understand what somebody else is looking for in that job. And then when you get the job, you've actually got to be able to do it well. And, you know, one of the things about getting a job, and I tell this story in the book about my oldest son, when, when he was uh, trying to get his first job, he interviewed with a company and didn't get the job that interviewed him for and he called back a week after and said uh well i was disappointed to, to find out i didn't get the job because i thought i thought the interview had gone really well and i just wanted to know if you had any advice for me and they said well no no particular advice but actually another job has opened up and you might be interested in it but you're probably not qualified for it yet. It involves a little bit more client engagement than than the experience you have so far. Would you like it? He got off the, the call with them and he called me and he said, what do I do? And I said, take it. And then I said to him, look, if you're completely qualified for the job you get, you aimed too low, right? You know, the, the whole point is that that we should constantly be striving to learn the next set of skills and and you you know you can't aim too high but you'd like everything that you take on to be a bit of a stretch and so really that middle part of of the career phase of learning to do the job involves a tremendous amount of understanding of your own psychology and then of course there's the transition to that next job whether you're going to move on to, from your organization to another one maybe maybe move out to a to, to a completely different career path or or maybe just move up within your organization and and that loop continues throughout your career that, that's fantastic and I, I love that story about your son and thank you for sharing the additional context for it part of the story reminds me of a story that's also in a book from dr mark goulston who's been a guest here as well as a ucla uh, professor of psychology in his story, he talks about the importance of getting to the know, that if you can get to the know and then follow up and listen intently to what comes after the know, that that's a great source of opportunity. It sounds like your son with some expert advice and guidance from Dr. Dad listened carefully and, and created an opportunity for himself. And you know, as they say in yoga, uh, growth begins at the point of discomfort. It sounds like your, your son found that appropriate point of discomfort and used it as a great opportunity to grow. I think that's right. And, and you know, that willingness to engage in relationships with people and to do it in a non-transactional way. I mean, what I appreciated about what my son did in that situation was he didn't call them to ask for a job. He called them to say, Listen, I thought we had a good conversation. Anything you could tell me about how to improve my performance would be really appreciated. And then they stepped forward with another opportunity. And, you know, that's it's so important to engage with people in that non-transactional way and just really enable yourself to learn from people around you. And then at times, wonderful things happen as a result of that. But you can't expect that to happen. You engage with people in a human way and let things go from there. 
really, really important point. At the end of the day, business comes down to people. Art, and I'll call you Dr. Markman here again, because I'm emphasizing the doctor part, because as you said in your book, your approach is firmly rooted in cognitive science and your background in psychology. And I, I really appreciated your honesty and levity as well when you introduced the, the notion that you can really capture people's attention and establish credibility by adding the prefix Nero to any topic and then pr proceeded to go on and talk about neuroscience as the basis of your advice and the guidance in the book. Help us understand neuroscience, cognitive science, and psychology and how these different concepts or approaches or studies all fit together. Yeah, so the concept of cognitive science is, is something that emerged in the 1970s as a recognition that, that you need lots of different perspectives to understand thinking. Psychology, which operates at the level of talking about knowledge and reasoning and memory and attention, the kinds of words that we often use when talking to each other about the way we think, psychology defines those in more rigorous ways and provides evidence, often by observing behavior. But there's lots of other ways to study minds. So, for example, the field of linguistics uses the structure of languages to try to understand the human mind. So by comparing different languages to each other and understanding how languages communicate about events or different kinds of concepts or how we describe even things like how we break up the space of colors can teach us something about the mind. Neuroscience, of course, delves down into what the brain is doing. Uh, sometimes at the level of individual cells, sometimes at, at a more systems level. So if you've, if, you know, people who've, who've seen pictures of, of MRI images, the functional magnetic resonance imaging measures blood flow in the brain and, and takes advantage of the fact uh, that more blood goes to regions that are more active because the brain is a very energy hungry organ. And so you can track where blood is flowing and, and use that to get a feel for which areas of the brain are, are most likely to be engaged in particular tasks and, and which circuits tend to be active together. And so that's another area that plays a role. But, but of course, there's also other fields like anthropology that play a role because you know, one of the one of the fascinating things about all of us is we grow up in a culture of a particular kind, and that culture influences all sorts of things about us, including the way we think. And then we just assume that's the way people think, as opposed to that's the way people from this culture at this time think. There's a wonderful concept in psychology these days that talks about the fact that a lot of psychology research is done on what they call weird populations, where weird stands for Western educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. I thought you were just talking so, about what's going on in Austin right now. Keep well, Austin that's right. weird. Keep Austin weird, that's right. Uh, you know, but a lot of our studies were done on, on a very homogenous kind yeah. of population compared to the kinds of people who've existed over human history. And the further you venture away from Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic folks, the more you find that there can be very different approaches to how people think about things that give us insight into which aspects of the way people think are obligatory versus which of them are just a a result of the circumstance in which most of us find ourselves growing up in. Very interesting. Kind of a nature-nurture type of argument about the development of the way people think and the way that the brain works. Quite an interesting perspective and, and quite an ironic use of the term weird, 
because uh, it obviously means exactly the opposite, completely normal, vanilla. One of the neuroscience perspectives that you share in Bring Your Brain to Work is the difference between the three brain systems that you refer to, the cognitive, the motivational, and the social. And then you introduce a fourth bonus brain, the jazz brain. Tell us about uh, these different brain systems and the role each. Please don't leave out how your own personal experience as a sax player in a ska band helped you understand the jazz brain. The idea behind this is the cognitive brain is really focused on our ability to process and use information. And, and of course, a critical part of most jobs these days involves being able to handle information effectively, to be able to understand new concepts, to be able to have new ideas, to be able to recharacterize something that people have done before in a different way that might lead to a, a different approach to doing something. And so the cognitive brain is really focused on those kinds of mechanisms. The motivational brain is that brain that, that engages you to do things. So the, the motivational brain has these two important components to it. The first is, is that it, it energizes us and we are energized by dissatisfaction. You, you can't be energized when you're completely satisfied. This is why you fall asleep after your big Thanksgiving meal. You've, you've had a big meal, you're surrounded by friends and family and there's football. So, you know, it's time to go to sleep. But when you're dissatisfied, that's when you're energized. And when you're dissatisfied and you have a pathway to action, then that energy drives you to act. So think about the difference between being stuck in traffic, where there's literally a gap between where you are right now and where you'd like to be. And you're energized, but you're stuck in traffic, so you can't do anything about it. And so you yell and you make splendid gestures at the drivers around you and you honk your horn because you can't get rid of that energy in any other way. Somehow we as human but, beings have not yet figured out that no matter how many times you honk your horn, you're not getting to the front of that line any faster. No, no, exactly right. It is an, it is a useless action to take. It is, in fact, uh, you know, in physics they say that energy without direction creates heat, oh. and the, psychologically, that energy without direction is is psychological heat, psychological frustration, heat. and anger. Yeah, I see how that applies for sure. Yeah, and actually, if you carry that out to its logical conclusion, physics also teaches us that energy with direction is work. That's actually the, the physics definition of work. And psychologically, the same thing is true. If I have an action I can take, a direction I can go, I can actually apply that energy to do work. Uh, motivationally, a lot of what you're trying to do in all facets of your career is to create that sense of dissatisfaction in a controlled way and then use it to carry out a plan of action that will help you to uh, take steps towards what you want to do. And so harnessing that motivational brain is important. And then, of course, humans are social creatures. We dominated planet Earth, not because of our fearsome physical prowess, but because of our ability to work together, as I, as I always like to point out. Yeah, I mean, as I point out, you know, if, if you put any human being up against a bear, and I mean like a real literal bear, the bear wins every time. But if you allow us to work together, we can accomplish anything. Understanding how is it that we can work together effectively, communicate effectively, really create relationships that are lasting relationships. You know, I think uh, one of the fallacies about business, for example, is that it's driven by transactional relationships. But, but transactional relationships are actually the kind of relationship you engage in with strangers, uh, with people you don't know very well. 
when you, as soon as you become more collegial, more neighborly with the people around you, the time horizon for your relationships expands. So think about the difference between, you know, you go to your local grocery store, you can't borrow sugar from the grocery store. You have to buy it. It's cash on the barrel right now because you're strangers to the grocery store. They don't know you don't know them. But if suppose you're making a recipe at home and you discover you're down a cup of sugar, you can go to your next door neighbor and borrow a cup of sugar and they will lend it to you. But you're going to have to do something later in return. So later that week, you might bring them a slice of cake or drive their kids to school or do something else for them. So we settle up our debts to our neighbors. We just don't have to do it in the moment. So there's real value to developing those social relationships, but also understanding the nature of those relationships so that you can be more effective. And then, of course, the bonus brain in this was the jazz brain. And the, the jazz brain is a little bit of a whimsical title. And it comes from the fact that I've always tried to, to find ways to learn new things. And in my mid-30s, I took up the saxophone which is a whole other story. I just thought at the time I was doing it for myself to learn, to have some fun. And only later began to realize that there were things I was learning from having learned to play the saxophone that were feeding back on other facets of my career. And so I started developing parallels between playing jazz and life and recognizing that there are just critical things, some of which are social in nature, for example, one bit of advice that they give to jazz players is that if you sit in with a new combo, you should listen more than you play. It's because in music, you're trying to mesh with the people you're playing with. So you, you listen to what they're doing and you try to find how it is that you fit with what they're doing. But if you think about this in other contexts, it plays out just as well. I've, I've been fortunate enough to, to be able to sit in a number of leadership roles over the last you know, 15 years or so. And I find that when I take on a new role, one of the first things I have to do is really to listen very carefully to other people, to find out what their concerns are, which they won't always express directly. It often comes a little bit more indirectly in the questions that they ask or in the, the way that they talk about other people or the way that they talk about a past event. But by listening, you understand more about their concerns, more about their aspirations, more about their hopes. And then by using that information and attaching what you're trying to do to the things that other people also find important, you can be much more effective if you play before you listen, right? Which a lot of people feel like they have to do. They feel like, well, I've been given this role. I have to demonstrate I deserve to be here. So they just go and do a thing. And as a result, what they play is discordant. It doesn't really fit with what everybody else wants because they didn't take the time to really understand the rest of the group. And so insights like that, which really came out of thinking about playing music, but recognizing that that's just another human activity and that whether it's a social piece like that or something a little bit more about the creative elements associated with playing music, that all of them really have, there's a lot of wisdom there and a lot of insight in, you know, that, that emerges from just learning to play music that fed back on all sorts of other things. Well, as you, though you call it the bonus brain, it truly seems fundamental, especially when you apply it in a professional context, all of those adaptations and insights and innovations you talked about that you can do spontaneously and adapting to circumstances. I think that's where over time you develop a certain set of innate skills as a professional that can boost you to that next level of success. And if you don't cultivate those, or if you're early in your career and you haven't arrived at that point yet, and I have people on my team that are so focused on get to the answer, get to the answer, get to the answer. And I try to tell them, no, no, slow down. It's not about having the right answer in the moment. 
It's about arriving at that answer together with the person you're meeting with. And that's the magic. That's when you achieve something that you can actually accomplish in business. So I really appreciate, you know, what you shared about improvisation and, and how important that is to the way our brains work. Like I said, per particularly in a professional setting. And coming back to our, our dadage today about the value of investing in the lives of others. You know, as I said at the top of the episode, we have talked about this in the past, mostly in the context of philanthropy. And I've talked about moving in my life in the past on dadages from a nonprofit philanthropic environment to what I refer to as for-profit philanthropy. And as I look to go through that transition myself, I've really looked at trying to find opportunities in a professional setting and for-profit pursuits that check some of those same mission-driven boxes for me. And I loved chapter two of your book that was entitled Finding Opportunities You'll Value. It really resonated with me. And in that chapter, you talk about seeing work as a calling. Can you explain what that means and how important it is in, in our career cycle as individuals? Work is a lot more than just a set of tasks that you do. And work that you're ultimately going to find fulfilling has to be more than that. And in particular, it has to be something that really you feel like by doing this work, you are living your underlying values. And in, in the book, I actually talk about, so Shalom Schwartz developed a set of values by exploring the value systems of people around the world and, and determined a, developed a wheel of values that he found consistently across the world. And people differ in their values partly as a function of, of their upbringing, partly as a function of their culture, and partly as a function of their own individual experiences and sometimes even their own individual wiring. Each of us needs to find a way to live those values in an effective way. If you are someone who values benevolence, right, which is really about giving to the people around you, then it can be very hard to be in a mercenary business environment in which the, the aim of the business is to enrich the firm and enrich the individuals in the firm versus a, an organization that really sees its mission as being about serving others and, and creating a better life for others. And so, you know, as you, as you point out, I mean, this idea of doing, doing well by doing good is something that, that resonates to a certain number of people because of their underlying value system. And, and a lot of times when you find yourself deeply dissatisfied with work, it is because you're doing work that doesn't have that element of a calling, that doesn't have that element of you really living out some key value that's bigger than yourself in that work. One of the things that's really important to note is that your values will shift over the course of your life. What you value at 25 may not be what you value at 45 or at 65. And so one of the reasons you see people shifting careers at different points in their lives is because sometimes they wake up one day and realize, you know what, the work I'm doing no longer fits my values. Maybe it did at one point, but my values have shifted and I'm going to similarly shift in the work that I'm doing. Yeah. And, you know, one of the other things you talk about that kind of piggybacks off of that is mindset. You highlight how if somebody has the proper mindset, they can look at their job or their entire career, really, and attach meaning to it. Can you give examples of this in practice and explain why it's important to be able to do that? And then perhaps you can explain how someone would know if they need to actually change jobs at a point in their life or if they just need to change their mindset about the job that they have. Yeah, I think the first thing to say about this, I think, Chad, you're bringing up a really important point. A lot of times you think, oh, the meaning has to come from the particular tasks that I'm doing. 
And it really isn't about the particular task. You can have somebody who is cleaning up an environment. We have many, I mean, I'm privileged enough to be at the University of Texas at Austin, a great university. I interact with staff here at the university all the time. And some of those staff are, are you know, academic staff who are really fundamentally pushing forward our teaching mission in a very direct way. I also engage with a lot of folks who are doing, who are working on our facilities, who are really making sure that we have a beautiful environment. The day-to-day tasks that they're doing may not always themselves be deeply enthralling, but many of them still experience a tremendous pride at being part of the educational mission of a flagship university in a, in, in a state like Texas. The idea is that if you attach yourself to the mission of the organization that, you're, that you belong to, that you believe in that, that you see the ways in which the work that you do contributes to the ability of that organization to achieve that mission, then you may be able to really see that work as a calling. So I think you know, a lot of this is not about, is, are the specific tasks I do day to day the thing that, that creates that value? But does the organization I work for create value that I believe in? You can shift mindset if you can look at your organization and say, you know what, I love this place. I love what it does and I'm a part of it. And I think where where the mindset shift isn't going to help is when you look around at the organization and you think, you know what, I simply do not believe what we do. I don't believe in it. I really feel like my efforts would be better served working in an environment that that served people in a different way. Yeah, yeah. And let's kind of personalize that a little bit now, because you've talked about these really important concepts, mindset, values. Maybe you could help us, Datages, friends and family, understand how your values have guided you on your own career path. And, and where do you think those values were formed along the way? Did they come from your parents, from your upbringing? Were there key mentors along the way that helped shape your perspectives and bring you to where you are right now? Yeah, no, I thanks for giving me the chance to talk about this. I mean, I've been very fortunate in many ways. I mean, actually fortunate from the beginning. My, you know, I grew up with wonderful parents who cared a lot about education, prepared me uh, for education early on. My mom uh, was a school teacher who took some time off in between me, her first kid, and, and my brother four and a half years later, who was her second child. Spent a lot of time. She taught me to read when I was, you know, three and a half. You know, it was, you know, it was a, she just, she needed to teach somebody something. And my, both my parents had master's degrees. So I grew up in an environment that really prized education. And I think, you know, that stuck with me in a lot of ways. I went to college. I studied, I took a bunch of different classes and discovered that I just found minds really fascinating and and ended up in this cognitive science major and ultimately actually went to school in psychology because I was actually fascinated by artificial intelligence, but computers in the 80s when I was in school were, as I like to say, they were slow and stupid. I decided I'd make more progress from a career standpoint if I went into psychology and studied intelligent humans rather than trying to make machines intelligent. I think if I were in the same position with the same set of interests, but in college right now, I probably would go in the other direction and, and have done more computational stuff. But, you know, things worked out just fine, so I can't complain. But what's fascinating is early in my life, and early in my career, I think I was interested in, I mean, you know, I had a, a real value for discovery, for, for trying to, to learn new things. And I think I valued achievement. I wanted to be seen as, a, as someone who was successful. I did what a lot of college faculty do. I, I wrote a lot of papers. I did a lot of research. I got my grants. What was interesting was the values shift along the way that changed my 
career path. I was fortunate enough, you know, to have a lot of scientific mentors, but I, I found over time that I wanted to more people to know the things that I knew. And so it, it really was that shift around the middle of my career that led me to do more of this blogging and more of this outward facing communication and more engagement with other people, which in many ways, I think reflects other aspects of my upbringing. My father's an accountant, you know, as, as an accountant, I don't think he loved accounting per se. I think what he loved was engaging with other business people and helping them. And, and yeah. yeah, he did a lot of mentoring as an accountant. Yeah. You know, he would, he would talk to people about how to run an effective business. And, uh, and that was the stuff when you talk to him about work, when, when he was, when his eyes were shining about the work he was doing, it was because he was talking about that kind of stuff. And, and I think that stuck with me. And so that opportunity to really teach more broadly than just the students who were taking my classes and, and to really get out there and try to help people to, to live their lives a little bit more effectively using some of the things I know, that became much more of a, of a passion of mine and ultimately drove me in a, in a very different direction from my career. Because I, I think up until about 10 or 15 years ago, most of my work was a traditional faculty member's work. I taught my classes, I wrote my papers, I did my research, I engaged with my graduate students and slowly began to do more and more administrative work at the university. So to where now, as, as you pointed out, I'm, I'm now our vice provost for academic yeah. affairs. And it, what administrators at universities do is really try to create an environment, an atmosphere in which good learning good education, good research can take place. And so, you know, I feel like I, I have this tremendous opportunity in front of me now to be able to influence how all of our students get their education, how all of our faculty teach to try to make good teaching, easy teaching. Well, and God you know, bless I'm, you in that pursuit, because as we've seen on Capitol Hill in the last two weeks, it's getting harder and harder to maintain an independent learning environment that nurtures free thought and free discourse. It's uh, yeah. a very, very difficult time in higher education right now. So it's a tough time. We as a, as a nation don't value nuance. Hmm. You know, it's in, in an era in which people want to say things in 288 characters. It turns out that there are things in this world that are more complicated than that. Yeah. It may take and, 300 and characters at least. <laughs> may at least, at least. And so I think really, and, and the other thing we don't value is, is learning. Right. You know, one of the things I talk about with, with higher education all the time is we take 18 to 22 year olds, we put them in college so that they can do stupid things and in a safe environment and to try on opinions and to try out ideas and to make mistakes and to recover from those mistakes and learn from those mistakes so that when they get out of college, they are incredibly effective people in the world. And if what we do is to force people, A, to never make any mistakes at all, and which hampers learning, and B, to solidify their positions early when they may not have all the data that they need to have truly informed opinions, we are doing a disservice to people. And so, you know, we need to create an environment in which you, you try something out, you explore it, you have those late night crazy conversations with your fellow students and you say things that you only half believe. And sometimes you'll offend people with those statements. And then you listen and you hear, oh, that let me rethink that. Let me, or, or maybe I need to learn something new. Some, somebody actually introduces me to information I was unaware of. And creating that opportunity 
is so incredibly important. And we have to guard that dearly at, at universities. And, and I, that is a role that we play that is invaluable. And we have to maintain that. It's truly a precious commodity. And, you know, you have an entire chapter of your book, chapter five, that is entitled simply learning. And in that, that chapter on learning, you talk about it in a career environment, not just an academic environment. And in particular, you talk about one form of learning that's so important. And you mentioned it a while ago uh, in our discussion here today, which is mentorship. And it's something that's fundamental to us here at Datages. It's one of our core values is that notion of mentorship. And I enjoyed your discussion of organic mentorship and the different types of mentors that we can find in our careers. I'd never really thought about it in that structure. Can you share with the friends and family your perspectives about mentorship and its importance to the career-long learning journey? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I mean, mentors are incredibly important. I, I'm sure you have wonderful stories of mentors you had. I, I certainly have as well. I've been very fortunate to learn from all kinds of people over the course of my life. And the thing about mentoring is a lot of times companies do it really badly. They just, they assign you a mentor on your first day and that person doesn't know you. You don't know them. You have coffee once and you never speak again. But if somebody asks you, do you have a mentor? You go, oh yeah, yeah. And you name that person. But what you really need is to give people an opportunity to figure out out what do they need to know? And these more organic mentoring opportunities arise when you actually know, here's a thing I need. I am empowered to go find people who seem to have that, whether it's knowledge or skills or just a career path that, that you aspire to. And then you want to seek out that team of people as mentors. So the other fallacy in these really inorganic systems is that there's one person out there who can give you everything you need. And, and that's never going to be the case. But you have some people who can teach you a skill, right? Or they, they know a thing and they're just going to tell it to you. You have other people who are going to be really good coaches, right? And if you think about a good coach, good coaches don't, they don't do anything for you. They set up an environment in which you can practice a new skill and learn to do it better. And so they provide you with that scaffolding to take a step beyond what you were capable of before. And then all of us need a librarian, somebody who just knows everybody, right? I mean, all of us have, a, have some, at least one person in our lives who have a huge social network of people. They just seem to know everybody. And when you talk to them, they will tell you, oh, you need to speak to this person. And if you need me to, I'll introduce you. And those people are incredibly important because, of course, the only way to get anything done in the world is to work with other people. And so they help you make those connections. And so what you're looking for is this variety of people, each of whom brings a little bit to the table for you. And some of those people may be behind you in your career, not ahead of you. Right. That is, you know, sometimes you just want to hang out with somebody who's got the, the life you want to listen to their stories. Right. Sometimes, you know, like I find now that a new technology comes out and, and there are times where I'm looking towards some of the younger folks in my organization to say, all right, how does this work? Like this TikTok thing. How do you get somebody who may be well versed in something you've you haven't had a chance to use before? And they may be at an earlier career stage, but you still may have a lot to learn from them. And by taking that orientation of being willing to learn from everybody and then gathering people around who will teach you, you've done yourself a tremendous service. And in a lot of those relationships you describe, it can be a two way street, right? If you're the more experienced, seasoned executive in a corporate organization, you have a lot to share and there may be innovative technologies, concepts, ideas like you described that you can pick up from them. And we spent a lot of time on datages talking about the value of mentorship, not just to the mentee who's receiving the knowledge, 
but to the mentor who's giving that knowledge and how valuable that process is. I'm sure you've taken a look at that in your studies over the years. What, what's your perspective on that? I think for all the reasons you described, that's absolutely right. That is. And then on top of that, a lot of us don't have the chance to really be reflective in, of, in our lives. I, I'm lucky right. as an academic, as somebody who writes a lot for different publications, I get the chance to reflect on what I know. And it makes it a little bit easier for me to articulate that. And certainly help me to write books and things like that. But most of us, we don't really have the time for that. And one of the beauties of, of engaging in mentorship is that it allows you to crystallize some of the things you know and to actually discover, oh, wow, I can take this little nugget of wisdom that I've picked up over the course of my life and turn it into something that I can transmit to somebody else. Yeah, and, if you really and, want to know something, try teaching it to someone else. Exactly right. Just, you know, you may think, you know, there's actually a reason why in med school it's, it's see one, do one, teach yep. one, right? Yep. That, that last stage of teach one is when you really make sure you fill in all the gaps. I run my company that way. In fact, that's part of the orientation I give to new team members is the med school approach. We're going to be all about see one, do one, teach one. It's a fundamental part of the, the learning process. So Appreciate you introducing that here. So uh, chapter eight of your book, I really enjoyed as well. It's all about leading. And in a professional setting, good leadership definitely involves investing in others, our, our topic here today. And I love this one piece of advice that you give about good leadership. You wrote, people are motivated by what you say, what you do, and what you reward and in reverse order of priority. Can you talk about investing in others in a professional setting and, and how much that means to a business and what th this, this quote means? Look, any organization is not, great leaders don't make an organization great. Great leaders help the people in the organization make the organization great. And in order to do that, you have to live authentically as a leader. And part of that authenticity is ensuring that you align the the stated values the stated goals with both what it is that people visibly do and what it is that you're rewarding as an organization so if you think about it when you know when you're in an organization that's inauthentic and they say we want people to speak their mind and then people speak their mind and get knocked down for it in a meeting you know or they don't they don't ever get called on again you know, or an organization says, yes, we want people to fail. And then somebody, some manager has a project that doesn't go well and you never hear from that person again. When you're not rewarding the behavior that you want people to engage in, then you shouldn't be surprised that nobody does it because people are exquisitely sensitive to that reward structure and they are also paying attention to what you do. So, for example, you know, one of the things that I talk about with my teams a lot in the context of higher education is I want us to make mistakes. I don't want us to go out of our way. I don't want us to make dumb mistakes, but I don't want us to sit and think about our ideas until we think they're perfect. You know, I tell the team all the time, just go out and get a B minus. We'll, we'll get an A later. We'll fix it. We'll listen to what goes on. We will find the problems. We'll fix them. You know, the world is like software, not like hardware. You, you ship a piece of hardware. It's as good as it's ever going to get out of the box. Software, though, you know, the week after you get it, they send an update with bug fixes and new features. And you don't say to yourself, this software company didn't know what they were doing. You say, good, I'm glad that they're on it and fixing things. And almost everything we do in life and in business is fundamentally like software. Get it out there, get it started, and then fix it and make it perfect later. 
in part because you're going to get feedback from the world that you didn't entertain. And the reason I'm talking about this is because this is particularly important for higher education institutions to do. Because we tell our students all the time, we want you to make mistakes and we want you to learn from those mistakes. If we don't ever demonstrate that happening, how are they possibly going to believe it? We have to actually get out there, try a thing, have it work well, but not perfectly, and then perfect it and show everybody that that's the process we're going through so that students come to believe, oh, I get it. I get it. You can try something, have it go well, but not perfectly, and then fix it and that that's okay. It's a really interesting point. It definitely brings teaching into a new light because I think very often people think teaching is a one-way street. We're going to sit in an auditorium and we're going to listen to somebody who's gotten everything figured out and they're going to tell us what they've learned along the way so that we can have it all figured out. But it sounds like you're discussing a far more engaging, evolved process of working together with students or with people that are learning in a professional setting equally and helping to bring them along by showing them the process of trial error iteration. That's right. That's right. I, because because that's the only way to succeed in anything. Yeah. I think, you know, to get back to what we were talking about earlier, I mean, I think part of the difficulty with the lack of nuance is people are afraid to do anything imperfect. And I think we have to normalize imperfection and normalize learning from those imperfections and getting it better the next time. People are so afraid to do anything wrong and they're so eager for everyone to tell them that they're right. We all have to realize that none of us are exactly right all the time. And by working together, to, we can arrive at the best possible answer, even though none of us is ever going to be right all the time. I really appreciate from your story, Art, that really a practice what you preach kind of guy. I mean, it's clear that you've dedicated your entire life to mentorship. You're, you're an educator. You're a parent. Uh, you've shared with me that you had a blended family. You've raised adult children now. Uh, have them out in the world pursuing their own dreams and desires. When you're taking everything you've learned in a professional setting and an academic setting, talk to me about how that comes across as dad. How does dad share these messages with your kids to, to get them to where they are? For me, one of the things has always been, particularly as my kids got older to the point where they were finishing high school, getting, you know, mo moving on. I sat down with each of them and I said, look, I want you to live your life. I get to live my life and I'm enjoying that, but I don't want you to live my life. I want you to live your life. And, I, and I'm here. I'm here to give advice. I'm here to, to make suggestions. But if you're living your life, you can't disappoint me. I think it was really important for me to be explicit about that because I think often we inadvertently, uh, in, in the process of, in, of transmitting some of our values to our kids, we close off the line of communication in which kids, our kids, have formed their own ideas about what they want and what they value and, and what, what success will look like for them. And so I think it was, I felt like it was really important to say, look, you, you may not value what I value. You may not want what I want. And that's okay. I'm here to help you get what you want, but don't feel like you have to get what I want in order for me to value what you're doing. And that was 
you know, to me, you know, it's just one of the things that that as my kids transitioned from being kids to being adults, and you know, it's it's, it's a long transition, as we were talking about before we got onto the podcast today. These days, that transition is long, but still, I never wanted my kids to feel like they couldn't come to talk to me about something they were dealing with because because what they wanted was something very different from what I wanted. It's really a wise perspective, and I think that oftentimes we as parents consciously guilty of trying to impose our own framework on our children, or maybe we're doing it completely unconsciously and we don't even realize it, but by taking that moment in time and stepping out and saying directly, whether you've perceived this, whether I've done something, whether I've said something to lead you to believe that you need to walk in my footsteps, no, go your own path, live your own life. I, I think that's brilliant advice. And I I think that it's something that I'm going to embrace and think about how do I make sure that I'm explicit and intentional about that, not just maybe letting it happen by accident that they find their own path and know that I'm supportive of them in that. Uh, so I, I really appreciate that perspective. This has been a, a phenomenal conversation across the gambit and uh, very informational. It's meant a lot to me, and I know it means a lot to the rest of the Datages friends and family as well. I'm sure that they would love to connect with you outside of this podcast. Obviously, you've written several books. You have your own podcast. Help the Datages friends and family know where they can find you. Yeah, thanks, Chad. And I just want to say up front, it's been an absolute blast. I'm so glad that, uh, that we got connected up so that we had a chance to have this conversation. I really appreciate your the, your depth of thought in this. It's a, you, You've got a wonderful show, and I can see why people uh, really gravitate to what you're providing. And, and for, for the folks who, who are listening today, and thanks for hanging on this long, I appreciate it. I, you know, the easiest thing to do is to find me on, on social media. LinkedIn is, is probably my favorite platform these days because it, it seems to be the one that's purest in, its, in just people being willing to share information in a, in a non-judgmental way. Although I do have a presence on, on threads and X is it now? And uh, I've got a Facebook author page. And so, you know, I try, I get the information out wherever I can, but I'm probably most active on LinkedIn. And Two Guys on Your Head is is found wherever your podcasts are found. And uh, certainly if people are willing, you know, if, if you want to check out some of the books, I'd certainly appreciate it. But I also write a weekly for Fast Company and write pretty regularly for, for Psychology Today. So, you know, I try to give as much away, much of this away as I can. Lots of places for the whole Datages friends and family to get their daily supply of Dr. Art Markman. Well, Art, this has just been fantastic. Again, thank you very much for being so generous with your time today. And as you know, here on Datages, one of the other things that we really embrace is humor. Dad may know everything, but dad doesn't know anything. And so we try to embrace the, uh, the idea of the bad dad joke and give each one of our guests the opportunity to share with the friends and family their very worst in, in the line of dadly humor. Uh, do you have something to share with the friends and family today? Yeah, I think I just live bad dad jokes. I am sadly puns are sort of my deeply ingrained in who I am to the point where not, not only did my kids get sick of this? When when I had my lab group, they decided that lab meeting hadn't truly started until the first pun, and so and so there was there was a lot of groaning in my lab. But, but my very favorite, um, the, uh, probably the only one I'm I'm actually proud of, was I came into lab one day. I had just been. This was soon after. Uh, the TSA rules had changed. You weren't allowed to bring liquids and things like that onto, onto the plane anymore. And I gone through security and I had lunch with me and they confiscated my yogurt. 
And I was really bummed about this. And I, and I told this whole story to the lab and then I stopped and I went, huh, I guess they're biased against my culture. Oh God. Yeah. That's, that's terrible. And, <laughs> and exactly. But I, but that's, I Insert was and, and, and tear. Yeah, exactly right. And that's the look I got. And I was like, score. So, which means you're winning. Uh, you're, you're walking exactly the walk right. and talking the talk. Exactly that, right. That's fantastic. Well, I, in, in honor of uh, bring your brain to work, I actually found a dad joke that is so perfect. I had to share it today as well. So we'll, we'll try this one on for size. So Art, what continues to work even after it's fired? I do tell. A neuron. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. It was just so perfect for today's topic. I couldn't I couldn't resist. I love it. Well, Art, this it. has been really informative and a, and a lot of fun too. Thank you again for your time and and thanks for sharing with us the book Bring Your Brain to Work. Encourage the Dadages friends and family to check it out. And uh, until next time when we connect on Dadages, I'll, I'll uh, remind our friends and family, Dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. <laughs>